Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with poet and playwright Claudia Rankin. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Good evening and welcome to a live taping of On Being with Krista Tippett, which is the opening event for the WNYC Work It Festival. I'm Allison Stewart from WNYC. Hi, everybody. We're so excited to see so many of you, a sold-out, enthusiastic crowd. We're going to have a spectacular event tonight. And I have to be honest, I'm really happy that I made it here tonight. A few months ago, I was asked, do you guys, would you want to be part of the Work at Festival, Allison? And I said, I have this little problem. I have to launch a live radio show in a week. So I'm, I'm kind of up to here. For those of you who don't know, I took over the afternoon slot at WNYC from noon to 2. Yay! Uh, it's a show called All of It, and our tagline that we, we work in the show is called It's About Culture and the Culture, how we live, how we treat each other, how we value each other through art, music, tech, food, science, and of course, faith, and how we experience it all as humans. And I bring this up because I think understanding who we are and how we treat each other and we live together in a common goal is, is a goal of all of ours as people who are in long-form audio as a medium. So tonight is the first of 12 public events offered as part of Work It. By day, Work It is a place for women podcasters aspiring and established alike to attend workshop, learn new skills, make some friends, build a network, maybe find a mentor, maybe find a gig, who knows. By night, we invite listeners to come face-to-face with our favorite female podcasters to experience a live taping and have a little bit of fun. This is why Work It was born and why it continues to thrive. It's in its fourth year. Work It was created by Laura Walker, president and CEO of New York Public Radio, to elevate the voices of women behind the microphone, in the production booth, and out into the world. This evening, yeah. (laughs) This evening, I have the privilege of introducing two honored guests, each an extraordinary woman whose artistry illuminates the great questions of our day. Krista Tippett is the creator and host of On Being with Krista Tippett. She's a journalist, a former diplomat, a student of theology. Krista has one of those restless imaginations that drives her to explore the human questions we all struggle with as we try to make our way through this life. On Being was launched nationally on American public media in 2003. Krista has identif- had identified a void in media where humankind's greatest questions about religion, meaning, and moral imagination were not being explored in an open-hearted way. She has filled that void with eloquence, wisdom, and deep insight. Her insatiable curiosity and exploration of spiritual traditions has won her a following on 400 public radio stations. Yes, as well as a Peabody Award. And five years ago, President Barack Obama awarded her the National Humanities Medal for her work in faith, moral wisdom, and ethics. Now, Krista's guest for this evening is a genius, and I use the word accurately. I'm echoing what the MacArthur Foundation said when Claudia Rankin was named a MacArthur Fellow in 2016. The MacArthur Foundation recognized what many of us have known for years, that Claudia is one of the most singular artists writing today. 
the author of five collections of poetry, including Citizen and American Lyric, amazing, winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award in Poetry and the Penn Center USA Poetry Award, Claudia continues to push the boundaries of imagination. She has been awarded fellowships by the American Academy of American Poets, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Guggenheim Foundations, and five years ago, she was elected as Chancellor at the Academy of American Poets, and she happens to teach at Yale. This fearless poet is a critical voice in discussions about race. She speaks to us powerfully through poetry, essays, lectures, and short films, seeking to understand American life in all its promise, hope, betrayals, contradictions, and fragility. Let's welcome Krista and Claudia to work with. New York City. Um, just before I start, I want to, well, first I just want to say how fabulous it is to be here. And I've wanted to interview Claudia forever, and I've just kind of been waiting for the right moment, and this was it, and here we all are together for it. Um, and I want to thank Melissa LaCase and WNYC, and especially the great people at WNYC Studios. And... I want to say to you, I think we're going to um, focus especially on themes in Citizen and the white card, but I did bring, and I have those with me, and I have a couple of other books, and if you just feel inspired to read something, you can. But Claudia just told me, <laughs> just, just grab it, and, but, but Claudia just told me that she's working on a new book, um, and that that may and that kind of that that what's on your mind may be what flows into this, and that's great too. Um, so you were born in Jamaica and came to the U.S. when you were seven. Is that that's right? That's correct. Okay. Yes. And somewhere um, when you were describing the you know that 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 time of your birth, you you put it in context this way that 11 days after you were born, on September 15, 1963, four black girls were killed in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. Um, so you were still in Jamaica those first seven years of your life. And I wonder, um, did you know that circum you know, that, did you have that context, or was that sequence something that you learned later when you were in the States? I didn't know. I didn't know. Um, I can't even say if my parents knew. But what they did know is that that, that wasn't a surprise. Mm -hmm. So that when we came to the United States, my mother said, um, there's one thing that you must know. Um, she had two things, two things that she believed in any case. One was that public school was awful. And, and two, and she did say this to me, you cannot trust white people. Those were her two you know, as a Jamaican woman coming to the United States in the 1960s when the American um, government opened up immigration because of um, a need for healthcare workers. Yeah. So that's, that's brought a kind of flood from the Caribbean. Yeah. And previously, and, most immigrants had been white Europeans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so, so whether or not she knew exactly that, 
she knew it, mm-hmm. and she communicated it. Um, was was there a religious background to your childhood? My mother is religious in any way you can be religious. <laughs> <laughs> she goes to church. She reads the Bible. She quotes mm-hmm. the Bible. She invokes the Bible. <laughs> so um, we grew up. We grew up um, with a real sense of her going to church. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I didn't always go because I didn't want my hair straightened. And if I wouldn't straighten my hair, she wasn't going to take me. So, of course, what? <laughs> yeah, that's great. So there was great. no straightening of the hair. <laughs> so it's true. One of the main things I remember about going to church growing up was dressing up for Easter. Exactly. Which is really not what we're supposed to be remembering. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, you know, it became a kind of um, a moment to be public in all your beauty, whatever you, your sense of that is. Yeah. Um, so, speaking of beauty, mm-hmm. um, you and I, I think this may be the only time where we were in the room together. It was a few years ago. I was thinking about this as I was getting ready to be with you. It was at a venerable New York institution and they had um, brought some people together to speak about the subject of beauty. Mm-hmm. It's a few years ago, um, you know, which is a lovely thing to spend half a day reflecting on with other interesting people. So I don't know if you remember this moment. Uh, so, and it, so one of the things that was so striking to me about that day is it, it was a true cross-section of humanity in that room. Um, definitely white people were in the minority and white men in a smaller minority. And, but I very distinctly remember this white man. Um, so one of the things I felt about that day is I, was, I felt like this is, this is what it's going to start to look like, right? Like this is what the world looks like. So that was interesting. And then this one of the very few white men, um, you know, a good accomplished person, made this statement that he says we were talking about what is beauty and people were coming at this from so many different directions and he said i with great authority right the kind of authority i think all women envy in men mm-hmm. <laughs> i believe except they don't even say i believe they just say it they right just say it <laughs> right I, I, say, I think i believe women say, say i know i know yeah so he said there is a canon of beauty. He said, there are works of beauty that I don't think any human being could see or experience and not, you know, cry, get the shivers. And so his list was not exactly this, but basically this, the Sistine Chapel, Boxby Minor Mass, the Mona Lisa, Shakespeare's sonnets, (laughs) which like this is humanity's canon of beauty, all white men from a very tiny part of the earth in just a, you know, a sliver of cosmic time. <laughs> and, 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 and there was this uproar. Do you remember this? Which was really fascinating. I'll tell you finish and I'll tell you what I remember from Okay, that. no, come on. Tell me what you remember. But like, part of my reaction was that I, said, I felt like Watching this, I realized this 
he, he is actually the token white man in this room. And this is the world that is now passing. But it's, it's awkward, and, and it, was, I mean, it wasn't just that people disagreed with him. It was, it was a painful thing. Well, to that I would say, I don't agree with you. Okay. <laughs> that this is the world that is passing. Okay. Um, you know, we, South Africa is a thing, was a thing, right? We have, um, we have an executive branch 100% white. I mean, if you, we have a Congress that looks like what the Congress looks like. Yeah. We have people in the media. Who, who's controlling all of that? Those people are going nowhere. I don't care about the minority majority numbers. Mm -hmm. The question really is who's in power. And that is not going to shift because white Americans are not going to let it shift. And they will keep it the way it looks by any means possible, as we have seen, right? So this notion of a diverse United States coming is also at the root of all of the anxiety. It's, I think people right. are acting out because the phrase minority, majority might suggest to them that they are about to lose their position in terms of hierarchical everything. Mm -hmm. and, and so um, the shift to the right, even by liberals, around this notion that you know, looming is this majority-minority shift is, is, is part of what is behind these immigration walls, yeah. everything. So I, you know, I, think, I think that's also out there. I, I agree with you. Uh, obviously, that is this, the world is not past right now. And no, no, no. I mean, I don't know if this And it will... won't happen until... It's projected for 2050, yeah. 2060. I mean, I guess like I, I kind of, you know, I could, I guess I kind of think it's, I think it's inevitable. I mean, I, and, but no. I'm talking about generational time. I'm not talking yeah, about yeah, election yeah. cycle time. Well, it is inevitable. That's why it's, it's important to reverse Roe v. Wade, according to them, right? Because mm -hmm. white women need to start having babies. I mean, it's, it's, it's really on that level. Yeah. I don't think any of it is random in terms of what is being targeted and what is being um, asked for. It is the sense that, um, that, that white Americans are going to be outnumbered. And that, that's true, but by whom? By whom? By Latinos mm -hmm. who are assimilation, you know, who well, can assimilate yeah. into whiteness and identify as white. There's also that going on too. Well, also, I, the demographic piece, like there is the demographic reality, but I think the question, I think the conversation I want to have with you, and I, I imagine everybody in this room wants mm -hmm. to have, is not just how do we, you know, not just do we make peace with the demographic shift that is coming, but how do we, how do we walk into this so that it is life-giving and we mm -hmm. become more whole as individuals and as people sharing life? Um, I mean, we could talk, we could yeah, keep yeah. going that, but okay. So, well, so I, I, I mean, let's let's. You published Citizen it was 2014, right? It's funny. I thought it was more recent. And to your point, 2014 feels like about 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It feels it feels like a different world. Although, although in my mind, one of the characteristics of the world of 2014, as opposed to now, is that 
it was easier to pretend that we had made more progress than we have. Um, for some of us. To for pretend. some of us. Not, right? So, like, no, because so there were realities yeah. and there were realities, and it was possible mm -hmm. to not, to really be able, to not know or to, to, to not say that you could see that. Well, yeah, I, I, I think some things have changed between 2014 and 2018. Mm -hmm. And that has to do, and this is for all of us, it has to do not just black people, I think, um, or people of color. It has to do with the level of trust we have in our spaces as we move about. I, I, I do think the level of anxiety um, in terms of um, sort of white terrorism, how that's working out for us, not very well. Um, in you know, various different ways in which our public spaces are now overrun with threats of possible death, separate from mass incarceration and separate from right. the, the police killings of black people. Yeah. So what you did in Citizen, you know, I think, I think I'll just say this, I think a lot about how the... Um, the language, like the Greek word for apocalypse, is not about a catastrophic undoing. It's about an uncovering. And that's one, that's to me one quality of this moment we inhabit. All kinds of things being uncovered. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that one thing you were doing in Citizen is... So, you know, you said your mother, your, your mother would always speak of American blacks and American whites. She had this clarity that there were different realities and experiences and that you were kind of mm, laying out, documenting, giving voice to like the cumulative imprint of those distinct realities and experiences. Um, you know, and it was in ordinary time in the subway, outside your therapist's office, on an airplane, at lunch at a college you're speaking at, in your child's school, in a real estate showing, like on and on and on. And I was, you know, this one thing that comes through, and so these are moments, but just, you know, you write about this exhaustion of constantly not just having the experience, but asking yourself, like, did he say that? Did I hear that? Did she mean that? Is this racism or not? The, um, I think in the years coming up to the publication of Citizen, I was, I was interested in this idea that... Um, we had entered a new time. And yet I was seeing the ways that racism, we know about structural racism, we understand you know, what, how it goes top down institutionally, structurally. But when you understand that it's coming from your friends, mm -hmm. you know, your so-called friends, and it's coming from your colleagues. And it's so unmarked 
So the, the, the writing of Citizen was really a project in, like, how do you get language to mark the unmarked? Mm-hmm. Um, because clearly, I mean, I believe these people are my friends. I mean, I spent a lot of time with them. I, you know, and, and in good faith, I'm, I'm working with my colleagues or... I'm trusting, you know, every time you drive your car, you're trusting everybody around you. Um, And yet, I was still feeling assaulted and diminished Mm -hmm. and insulted. And, you know, you um, you say that anger is how pain shows itself in public. Yeah. Um, And angry. You know, so I, I, I really wanted to see how you, how do you get language to show that? And the examples in Citizens aren't, some of them are mine, but they're not most, for the most part, they're not mine intentionally, because I didn't want people to say, you know, you should get new friends. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> or you should, you should make better choices with who you hang out with. And so I, I called um, other friends um, who are, for the most part, African-American and said, um, can you tell me something, some ordinary thing that you were doing? And then somebody in your life said or did something to make you realize in their eyes you are no one. And so uh, many of those came, and they wouldn't come right away. People would say, oh, I don't know. I can't really think of anything. And then they would call back. And, and then the stories would pour out mm-hmm. um, to the point, I, I remember I, I asked a friend who's a lawyer in, um, in Los Angeles, and he says, you know, he's this guy who is like, He's a definition of cool. You know, like, you, he's the one, if all the kids are in the house together and his family's there and our family and Andre, and, you know, some fire starts and the rest of us are like, oh, my God. He's like, put it out. You know, he's that guy. <laughs> he's just like, put it out. And, and when he came over... I said, I'll make you dinner. You come over and you tell me everything that's ever happened to you. And, <laughs> and that's what happened. And, and he came over and he turned into a different person. He cried at our dining room table. His wife, who's white, had never heard any of these stories. And she completely changed after that dinner. Um, yeah, how? Um, there was a deli, this is one particular anecdote, there was a deli that she bought stuff from all the time. And they went there together, and the owner of the deli suddenly um, didn't want to serve her husband. And, and she left, which is not something she would have noticed or done right. prior to that. So, so it... It was a sobering um, exercise in terms of the gathering of those mm-hmm. pieces in Citizen. I wonder, um, let's see, this one. 
I have so many notes. It's terrible. Um, oh, page seven. Yeah. Well, let me see. Because I think we're talking kind of in the abstract if people haven't read the book. Um, here, just this one, page seven, which is also kind of the effect it has on you. Certain moments send adrenaline to the heart, dry out the tongue, and clog the lungs. Like thunder, they drown you in sound. No, like lightning, they strike you across the larynx. Cough. After it happened, I was at a loss for words. Haven't you said this yourself? Haven't you said this to a close friend who early in your friendship, when distracted, would call you by the name of her black housekeeper. You assumed you two were the only black people in her life. Eventually, she stopped doing this, though she never acknowledged her slippage. And you never called her on it. Why not? And yet, you don't forget. If this were a domestic tragedy, and it might as well be, this would be your fatal flaw, your memory, vessel of your feelings. Do you feel hurt because it's the all black people look the same moment or because you're being confused with another after being so close to this other? Thank you. That last line, I have to say, was the hardest line to write in the book. Because the original version of that piece was something like, is it because um, I, was trying, I was trying too hard to come up with the language of, in my head. So I was thinking, is it because she's a servant? And my husband said to me, is that really the issue? You don't, it's a class thing. You don't want to be compared mm. to somebody who, who has a job. And so I realized, I was like, no, <laughs> a job that you don't want to have, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I said, no, it's not a class thing. Um, I just wanted to use the word servant because master, slave, servant. And so then I had to take that away, but then it had to be replaced. And um, my editors here from Grey Wolf, um, um, Fiona, and, and I, I was kept thinking, they were saying, you know, you, we need the text, we need the book. But that line was not done. And I would go on hikes and think, okay, come on. What, what is it? What is it? And then I realized it really is about intimacy. You know, you, you really, when it comes down to it, the space between us mm -hmm. gets violated mm -hmm. in these moments. And you get othered. Right. Where you don't expect to be othered. Where you don't expect to be othered. Mm -hmm. um, I learned from you that there's something called, I guess you got this from Elizabeth Alexander, or you learned this, John Henryism, mm -hmm. which is about this prolonged exposure to stress, like the mm -hmm. effort it takes and the psychological cost of a, a million moments like this. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, I've been interviewing 
black women doctors, and medical doctors, but also PhD doctors. And, um, and the more I interviewed them, the more we began to see an overlap in the interviews around the trauma gene and um, epigenetics. Yeah. And this notion that for African-Americans, the gene has stayed mutated for 400 years. Mm-hmm. In um, Jewish Americans, or not even Americans, but in Jews, the gene was mutated and it took a generation and a half for it to mutate back to normal. And then they um, went back to places like Ghana where, where blacks were taken to the United States. And they have the normal gene that whites have. So African-American women mm-hmm. have um, high in mortality rates for children, um, die younger. And it's because the cumulative um, and the, uh, impact of racism, just racism, mm-hmm. And having to negotiate that, yeah. and having to take on the the stress of um, knowing that your children also right have to negotiate it every day. Yeah, and again, I just I just feel like what you document is negotiating a kind of moment to moment, mm-hmm. hour to hour, day after day, in the places you inhabit. And right, as you say, with your intimates also. With your intimates also. Mm -hmm. You know, I just had a really corrupt thought. Um, (laughs) Not this moment, but um, my daughter goes to a school um, that is filled um, with very wonderful people. And... And they are, they're good people. But we had to have these teacher-parent, teacher conference. And there was a moment before I was, you know, getting ready to go, and my husband was ready to go, and my husband's white. And there was a moment when I thought, and this was a corrupt thought, I thought, maybe he should go by himself. Because if I go, they'll have so much racial stress that it, they might take it out on my daughter. And I had, I mean... Uh, Obviously, I was going to go. I'm a parent. I have to go. But I had that thought. Yeah. And then I got, we got there, and they, they do this kind of like speed dating to meet with the teachers. And, um, and so all the teachers are lined up in the gymnasium. And, and so I write about this in the new book. And, um, and my husband at that moment said, I wonder how many African-American teachers are here. So, you know, we counted, there were two. But, um, <laughs> but he, I was interested in the fact that he, he was also thinking about it, in a, in, but in a different way. He wasn't thinking, you should stay home, lady. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he was that, so we're all bringing it forward mm-hmm. in terms of how are our children going to be treated. I, you know, I have a friend in... In somewhere, and um, and she has a five-year-old, and just un, you know, as God is my witness, yesterday she called me and she said, I had to move him from his preschool because I got an email saying that he was violent, 
And so she called up the school and she said, how is this violence showing itself? He kicked a chair. And so she said, and he is the only five-year-old who has kicked a chair in all of your teaching? But he is the one black child at that Mm -hmm. school. Yeah, and violent is a He's huge violent. It's a huge word. Violent. Yeah. So that's what I mean. I mean, it's, you know, it's just the reality. So, um, you know, when we're in, in, our, in our project, when we're talking about race, mm-hmm. um, always being attentive to wanting to soften the space to have for people to hear mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. like there's no point there's you know there there's there's no point in so so I will often we will often uh, you know we won't let like like language of white privilege or white supremacy we will let people say what they're talking you can talk about it without using the words mm-hmm. and 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 that's I think is important because some of these words like the word racist, trigger all these reactions in people and you know shut their imaginations down and get them, mm-hmm. and so they stop listening. Mm-hmm. So I say that, but I, what I found so important when I was reading you and getting ready for this is realize what you were showing me. I mean, and the language of white supremacy now is so loaded in all kinds of other ways, right? And now we think of very real force energies and people who are, you know, gun-toting, hate-mongers, vigilantes. But I feel like what you also give voice to and put words around is kind of, I don't know if this is the right language, but like the soft underbelly of white supremacy that is really about all of us, our culture, like that is like, you know, that's that's in well, just in this fact that I'm, as you point this out, white Americans don't identify as white Americans; they just identify as Americans. Um, it's you mention like Hannah Arendt and the banality of evil, that notion. And I think we all, a lot of us, who are educated know that, but I don't think white Americans ever apply that image to how we live and this what you cuz what you're describing uh, going through your days is experiencing the banality of evil and it is white supremacy as it is woven i mean this i'm saying is as it, as it is woven into the fabric mm-hmm. of everyday life mm-hmm. no it's a, you know i to go back to the example of my friend and her child i said did you tell the teacher what she's saying is racist and racially motivated. And she said, no. And I said, but if you don't say it, you're complicit Mm -hmm. with the notion that it's something else. Um, Bernie Sanders, was it Bernie Sanders? Who said um, the fact that in uh, Florida and Georgia, that white Americans couldn't get themselves to vote. They're not racist. They just couldn't get themselves to vote for a black person. Now, now, if that is not the definition of racism, I don't know what is. And Bernie Sanders puts himself, was put forward, was presented as the hope of America, right? And this person doesn't understand what racism is? Yeah. 
and that's who you know so i i think i i understand that um in order to and you know robin d'angelo's white fragility is about this in order to get white people to face up to the fact that they're just racist because the system is racist and they're we are acculturated inside that system yeah. um we need to allow the conversation to happen. And I'm really interested in your um, conversations because of that and trying to think about ways to start conversations. But I also think that we need to grow up in terms of what the realities are. Because as long as we allow the kind of euphemisms yeah. to stand... You know, I was had a dinner party and somebody said... Um, my my son has been um, redeployed. I'm really, really um, nervous. I you know I believe I, I think the military is important, but I'm just you know full of anxiety. Yeah. And a woman who is a former judge said, "Well, I know what you mean. My my son um, just moved to Brooklyn." And I'm sitting next to him, I'm like, Brooklyn. And, <laughs> and she said, yeah, I, you know, I really worry about him. I worry about his, whether or not he's going to live. And I, I'm like, oh, so Brooklyn is now... And I said, have you been to Brooklyn lately? You know, like, <laughs> but, but that, I mean, that's, that's Brooklyn as equal to black people, as equal to racism. That's just it. And this woman, had Hillary won, would have been in the government now, and we would have thought, that's better than what we have, and it would be better than what we have. But she's still racist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just, I want to read this line. Um, this is from Citizen. Just how to care for the injured body the kind of body that can't hold the content it is living. I just want to read that and put that out there. Um, you wrote a play coming out of the white card, mm-hmm. coming out of, as you were kind of, I think, on the road with Citizen and out of the conversations that emerged from that. And I, and I want to, and I think, and now you said you're writing about how to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. It seemed to me maybe this was a spark. Um, and you um, describe being in a kind of this cathartic moment where you're speaking, reading, and a man stands up and says, what can I do for you? How can I help you? And I think you probably have to explain to a lot of white people um, you know, why, that, why those aren't the questions. Like, so just... You know, tell us why those aren't the questions. Why don't you tell us? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, because I know you know. Um, well, you know, that sense that the problem, the thing, is out there. Yeah. There is no racism without white people. So, one, you know, um, Baldwin said that the problem is that um, we've been talking about the Negro problem when it's really the white problem. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and, 
And Trump's administration has made it writ large, but it, he didn't start anything. He amplified something. Um, so that sense of wanting to distance the self from the banality of evil mm-hmm. um, and not understand that every choice made is a choice towards the continuation of a white supremacist foundation in this country. I mean, um, Me Too, the um, rallies after the pussy-grabbing comment that happened after the inauguration, they, it was stunning, stunning to see all of those white women gathered, and others were there as well, but white women gathered across the country and in Europe. It was moving. It was incredible. Some of those women, um, first time in their lives as activists. And as I was looking at it, I was thinking, wow, this is incredible. And I was also thinking, where were you when Michael Brown died? Where were you when Trayvon Martin died? Where were you? 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 And um, so that, that sense that those problems are not the problems, and that really will get me to walk out of my house. I mean, in a certain sense, all of us right now really should be in front of the White House, right now. Um, I think this is a good place to be, too. <laughs> or, and here, and here. I think this is a worthwhile use of... <laughs> no, but, I, but, I, but yeah. I think, um, you know, what's happening around immigration... Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. I know, I know. But, but what you said to this man is, um, when he said, what can I do for you, how can I help you? Mm-hmm. Uh, is- trying to muster in himself the appropriate response to what you were showing... Mm-hmm. And you said, I think the question you should be asking is what you can, what you can do for you. Right. Um, the play, which I, I watched a video of it, which was important. And, uh, you know, you said that you, you, you wrote this because you, you, you then were having this experience and you just decided, you kind of needed to act it out, like to role play it, put, make it three-dimensional. Mm-hmm. And it's really about aspects of this dynamic. Um, and I want to say, I start watching it. It's, it's, it's hard to talk about this because you all haven't seen it. Um, I mean, do you want to kind of set the scene? It's, um, it's a play about the art world and um, very um, wealthy art collectors who are committed to social justice, are um, interesting in acquiring a series of works by an uh, African-American artist. And um, so the play begins at a dinner party where they are meeting her for the first time. And, um, And she's very particular about who gets to buy her work. I mean, she wants to sell her work but she doesn't want to sell it um, to just anybody. And so, the, so they, they, they know that 
she's particular, but they feel that they are her ideal um, buyers in a sense. And so they have, they meet. And the, the father, the patriarch, is really the, the guy who's interested in the work. And um, so they have the dinner party. The dinner party goes off track in, in ways that um, are both subtle and not subtle. Um, and for reasons that are random, like the son is a Columbia student. He comes, he's very activist-oriented. Um, so, uh, so, and then act two really is a conversation between, or scene two, is a conversation between the father, or the, the, the man in the family, and the black artist in her studio. Mm-hmm. And it... It like the dinner party. There's a there is an aspect of I I really wanted it. It feels like caricature, and I wanted to think I wanted to feel like it was caricature, and it's but it's actually way too close to how too many conversations go. Um, from her leaving the room and somebody saying, "I'm thinking I'm thinking she'd be good for the board. It will definitely solve the diversity issue." Um. But, you know, there are these moments where Alex, the Columbia student, says, I'm angry at my father for incarcerating your people. He builds private prisons. And she says, why not just say people? Um, I, I've had this experience uh, just this week, two, two, days, two, two plays in two days, watching yours and then seeing An American Son, mm-hmm. that play Kerry Washington mm-hmm. is doing. Have you seen it? Not yet. Um, And I, I talked to her a little bit after after the play because there's something about that one and yours that um, and it was a very mixed racially mixed audience um, and there were a lot of things that people took as laugh lines and I was frankly I wasn't sure the whole time what mm-hmm. I, and mm-hmm. and I think different people were laughing at different things mm-hmm. and it was a, a black mother a white father a black policeman mm-hmm. a white policeman. Yeah, but one of the things I said to her is like, because this this white this black mother's son is has been is did not come home and there's an accident report. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, you know, is it? How does that feel? You know, is that offensive to you to have to, like, when people laugh? And and I feel like you and your play also there's people laugh. Because it's it and it's uncomfortable. And she said, as a producer, she said, people can't handle this intensity. You can't just ask them to sit there for an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. I feel that same creative work and tension in your work. Um, but it just it. I don't know. I came out of it feeling like realizing this is a lot to ask of people to watch this. But it's not too much to ask of us. It's not too much. It's kind of like you said, we need to grow up. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, I, um, I, one of the things I like about Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility book is that she introduces very clear terms about certain things that are, I, I find very useful. And one of them is white stamina. White what? Stamina? Stamina <laughs> for, for racial content. Okay. That... That white people have to build up a stamina to be able to, to hold racial stamina. Yeah. You know, like to, to, to be able to I talk. Think that's a, but I think that's a useful 
Yeah, it's a useful you, term. Some right? words, yeah. Yeah, and um, so I think the more one goes to see plays like these and read books like these and listen, it it will not seem so foreign or hot or self-incriminating. You know, if if one understands, oh, this is the society we grew up in. Yeah. And if one is honest about what those secret thoughts are or what got said at, at inside what was a private space with white people or what gets said when people of color come in, if you begin to just be honest about those things, mm-hmm. then when you see it, it won't be like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, because the reviews for the white card was like, Claudia Rankin is giving. She just turned those white people into horrible characters. Really? <laughs> Some of them. It was, it was um, she didn't give them any good lines. You know, all <laughs> kinds of things were said like that. And, uh, you know, it's, the, the, I just called up some artists and said, what kinds of things get said to you? And they told me. I mean, not that they needed to. Yeah. <laughs> I have been living this life too, but um, yeah. I mean, it's it's it's. I I think, I think the one thing I have learned in the last ten years, let's say, well, you know, I had breast cancer, and I think that really mm. was a turning point. And you realize, oh, you just you could just die any time. And um, so you might as well just speak your peace before it's rest in peace, you know? Hmm. Um, I think, uh, so I, I interviewed um, Eula Biss mm-hmm. on whiteness. And, um, you know, she, her, this is kind of one of the ways she wrote about what you're writing about in in her language, one of the privileges of being white is that you can coast through your experience. You can coast through your life without having to think about what your race means to other people and what your existence in a community means to the people around you. And actually, she quotes you, and I read your words to her from this incredible piece you wrote in the New York Times after the massacre in the church in Charleston, where you said... I asked another friend what it's like being the mother of a black son. The condition of black life is mourning, she said bluntly. For her, mourning lived in real time inside her and her son's reality. At any moment, she might lose her reason for living. Though the white liberal imagination likes to feel temporarily bad about black suffering, there really is no mode of empathy that can replicate the daily strain of knowing that as a black person, you can be killed for simply being black. No hands in your pockets, no playing music, no sudden movements, no driving your car, no walking at night, no walking in the day, no turning onto this street, no entering this building, no standing your ground, no standing here, no standing there, no talking back, no playing with toy guns, no living while black. Um, Eula Biss wrote that she read this essay of yours and then started asking, she said, sitting with this essay in front of me, I asked myself what the condition of white life might be. 
And I wondered, is that a useful question in your mind? I think so. I think that um, I'm really appreciative of Eula's work. I, I've, I've read it, and, um, and I know her. Mm-hmm. And she's published by Grey Wolf as well. And um, I sometimes think Eula could be a little bit more... Um, forthcoming. I mean, I find her very careful sometimes mm-hmm. in, in um, you know, because really, I'm really interested in what is going on in my people's heads. When, you know, when, because I know a lot of things are going on in my head. And I know that you are no different from me. Mm-hmm. And I know that you're having lots of thoughts and saying three sentences. Mm-hmm. So what are all those thoughts? Mm-hmm. And um, and so I think Eula is one of those people out there that I'm, I think will be able to say if she's willing to say, um, what what is what is being circulated inside in terms of one sense of the negotiation. I mean, we've seen all of the white women who are acting out and demanding people's. Um, credentials as they're trying to enter buildings or get their car fixed. But, but I, I'm talking about like sane people, yeah. people who, <laughs> people who I, you know, I respect and I have, I, I, I would really, because there is that sense of like everybody has to be so careful. Um, well, right, but I think there are reasons to feel that, yeah, to, be, to yeah. be nervous. And, it, and it, I mean, it's interesting because there aren't that many people, even just given this conversation, there aren't that many people like you is saying, let's talk about whiteness. Mm-hmm, let's mm-hmm. talk about whiteness. We, I mean, there was actually a moment in that conversation with her where two white people talking about whiteness, and we, I mean, I, I kind of caught, you know, it was, we both agreed that it was mortifying and, and, and embarrassing and, and messy. And, you know, and, and part of it is you feel like you, surely we were past this, right? We shouldn't, be having to have this conversation at this advanced age, and I mean, she talked about how. And I want Krista, to ask don't you, say that. Hmm? Don't say surely we were past. Well, mean, I think that's one reason f- people feel awkward that because they because we're still getting over from like from this cathartic five years from two. No, but but this, but you know. I know. Incarceration. You know. You know what's I happening. Know. You know. So not surely. I mean, those things were always happening. They were, but I think people who grew up in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s were born into a world in which they were told that, yes, sure, it wasn't perfect yet, but we were inexorably moving past it. Like that, That's an in- instinct. Then now we're having to unlearn and say, actually, we weren't, we weren't anywhere. We just, we just made baby steps. Okay. That's what I mean. Okay. But she said... You know, she said that she really, she experienced in her students that they're scared of saying things out loud because they're scared of saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I just, I have a friend who, um, she and I, she's a white woman, she and I read, read books together. Like, you know, we, we read it and then we talk about it. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're books on whiteness. And um, It's, it's interesting because we made a rule between us that we would say whatever we're thinking. 
And it's been great. It's mm. been really interesting. It, um, because then we sort of navigate, what is that? And it might be that that kind of exercise needs to happen first with white people with white people so yeah. that they can do it. But that's ironic in a way because that is reinstating segregationist um, principles in an effort to be anti-racist. So I'm like... <laughs> yeah, um, and, but I think that's... I mean, but, it isn't... You know, it but, is, but it might be necessary, I don't know. I mean, but she and I had that conversation because uh-huh. she said, well, that's a stark way to look at it. And I was like, that's an ironic way to look at it. But, um, but I, 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 think, I think, yeah, it, it just has to start happening. Yeah. 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 You, so the racial imaginary... Institute is a project you're working on, and I, I feel like you are out of that offering up some, some tools of language and imagination, and action, and I and it sounds like you're writing about this now too. So I'm just I'm curious about how you're thinking these days about how to open that space wider. Well, that that really is my ambition, like how how to have the conversation so that the space can hold discomfort so that the thing isn't a thing that you have to put over there. Um, So that we can get over ourselves, in a sense. And and I mean all of us, um, people of color, white people, that we have suddenly a moment where we have an investment in a kind of possibility that is beyond our um, negotiation of each other. Mm-hmm. And, and where we accept, and it, I think the messiness of just saying what it is when it is, um, if Bernie Sanders could say, okay, those people are racist, and that's why it's difficult for them to vote for a black person. Hopefully, um, the next time they can get a little closer to doing it. They did it, some of them, for Obama, and then reverted back. Um, so, you know, like, just say it, especially people who are in the media, so that people can see it sort of modeled. Yeah, but I think... People probably feel like that. That probably feels so dangerous. It's only dangerous because you don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> I mean, things get ordinary very fast. Yeah. I mean, I have a. I'm in a. I have a very long form, crafted space. Not having to and and intentionally choosing not to weigh into what happened 20 minutes ago or this mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 I like it's yeah. good, but but I think the media, the media when people say that it's often about this thing that's coming at us all the time mm-hmm. constantly and that's where I think it's tricky to imagine people not fe- being overly careful. But I mean, but you're of, right. Yeah. That needs that's where it needs to change. Too. Yeah, I mean, if if something is not true, say it's not true. Yeah. If something is racist, say it's racist. Yeah. And and everybody has to start doing it. I mean, one of the things you say also is that um, that every conversation about race doesn't have to be about racism. Right. 
And I think that's an important piece of permission mm -hmm. for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about, um, I had a really great conversation the other day with um, a Latina woman because I said something like, um, Ted Cruz, here I am back in the, in the news. <laughs> back in the news cycle, okay. Um, is a bit of an assimilationist. And, and she said, well, you know, you can't say that he stands in for Latinx people. And it was interesting because we began to think about how you think about Hispanic people mm -hmm. inside um, the world, you know, that has become a kind of black-white world. Yeah. And, and in terms of the census, Latina people are given, like, white Hispanic... You know, I had a great conversation with a guy, and he was driving me to the airport, and I was saying, you know, as people of color... And he kept saying, as a white guy, and I was like, because <laughs> um, he was Puerto Rican, he, had, he was white identified. And I'm like, as people of color, we've really got to think about it. And he's like, as a white man, I'm really stumbled, you know, and, and, and we just kept at it throughout the entire, but it, it's really interesting to think about um, the ways in which people self-identify, mm -hmm. um, yeah. despite how, how they're perceived. Um. Some of what you, some of what you've written about the racial imaginary institute, I just, I'd like to kind of draw you out on. Um, uh, let's see. It, I mean, just about. You know, you you you. There's you talk a lot about all the ways it's possible to be white and to not. To feel innocent, you know, and or make excuses without meaning to make excuses or knowing you're making excuses, um, that these are very well-flexed, very strong muscles. But, um, you know, you said what a, what a white person should, should know is this, her whiteness limits her imagination. A deep awareness of this knowledge could indeed expand the limits, not transcend them, but expand them, make more room for the imagination. A good thing. I mean, you're having a conversation among artists, mm -hmm. but just, I also feel to open, to let the imagination into the room. Mm -hmm. Say, so that's, that's also a muscle we get to flex. Yeah, here. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, say, I mean, just say so, because I think, is yeah. that, are you thinking about that now as you are thinking about how to start the conversations? No, I am. I am. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I, as much as I'm interested in what is possible, I'm also interested in what is possible for me. Mm -hmm. And so as a writer, as an artist, as a person, and so part of my desire to have the conversation is really to be able to find my own blind spots mm. and to be able to open, to be curious, mm. to, to go places with a person beyond our sort of predestined positionings. And... Um, 
And it happens, you know, it happened. I, I had a great, I was on a plane and there was this white guy and he was nice. And, and he said, you know, he asked me, um, what kind of music do you like? And I said, I like uh, Night Shift by the Commodores. And he's like, I love Night Shift. <laughs> and so, you know that song? Um, how does it go? Somebody sing. Um, I don't think so. On the Night Shift. Lily knows Shift. <laughs> Jackie. Oh, <come> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like... What you doing now? Anyway, it's a great it's a great song. And so we sang that song. Yeah. And 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 like on the plane, two strangers. <laughs> we sang Night Shift, even though I can't do it now, but I had him to push me along. And so the words came back. And um and 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 he was, you know, he's really he's the kind of person who had I met him in my real life, mm-hmm. we probably would be friends. And then he said to me, um, I don't see color. And it was like, whoa. <laughs> uh, you know, and, but the amazing thing that happened was um, somehow I said to, I don't even know how I did it, but I said to him, mm, uh, that's, <laughs> that's not such a good thing to say. And he said, Why? Mm. And I said, because I'm a black woman and you're a white man. And I want you to see that. I want, if you don't see color, you're not seeing me. Mm. And if you can't see me, you can't see racism. And I want you to be able to see those things. And he said, and this is the moment that um, I loved. He said to me, did I say anything else? Mm. And I said, no, that was it. And then, and then we got back on our conversation, just like that. You know, I love that story so much because um, it's also, it also points out that, you know, I think when we start talking about having the conversations, it kind of sounds like another extracurricular activity, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, and you're, what, if, if these old, flawed impulses are woven into the everyday, then these new impulses have to be woven into the everyday. Mm -hmm. And these conversations don't have to be hour-long meetings, at the end of which we have made a, you know, pledge together. It's like it can be two minutes on the plane that's transformative. Exactly. I mean, I, I... We were able to continue talking and singing our songs. <laughs> I love this you say, for one source of creativity lies in the fact that each individual is essentially strange. This essential strangeness, this unknowability is a creative resource, perhaps the creative resource, the wellspring of art that shows us things we did not know but that are somehow inevitable and true, true to a reality or a knowledge we don't yet possess yet fine in the moment of encounter, possible, something we accept the fundamental being of, even if its nature shocks or startles or repulses or unsettles us. That, uh, that was written with um, Beth Lafreda, and that was her section. Okay, well... And, um, but her section, through, I mean, we talked throughout the, the making of it because we, we um, collaborated on that book, and... 
And Beth, again, is a white person. And, and I am consciously okay. working with white people to try and figure out where can we actually get if we're getting... Because it's not, it's not, um, it's not useful to me if your humanity is left out. Yeah. And so I'm, you know, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in both of us showing up. Mm-hmm. There's uh, the the language of intimacy came up earlier on. Um, that it is precisely the intimacy that makes it such a painful affront. But I feel like, and I think this comes up in other conversations you have, that there's that there's a there's some you hear you you quote you you mentioned that you had a friend who said to you I think what you're doing is pushing people away so they can get closer. This is this is not about pushing people mm-hmm. away. It's about reestablishing or establishing for the first time an intimacy that is meaningful. Yeah, that it, well that is truthful. Mm-hmm. That is I mean I feel my friends. It's I don't think it's easy being my friend. Um, But I think the friends who are my friends, I trust with my life Mm -hmm. because we have had to consider my life every day. There's nothing... um, If something is said, that means that I drop out or that they drop out, then then it has to be mended immediately. Or else we're, we're working with a, with a broken thing. Yeah. Um, I thought I might ask you to read this, but I actually want to look at it and see if I think... Um, no, I don't want to read. We're going to read right. something else. <laughs> it's kind of not where we are now. Do you do you memorize your poems? Do I memorize your poems? My poems? Yeah. I don't write poems. You don't write poems? No. Somebody told me you wrote poems. <laughs> I couldn't I, find them. I aspire to write poetically. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I no, I only write poems in private in my journals. Oh, but you but you give sermons. I do. How yeah. did you know that? I just gave one last weekend. Yeah. I did know you know that. that? I did know that. Oh, my God. That was the first time in 20 years. <laughs> um, well, actually, that's what I wanted. I wanted to talk about. Um, I, I've been so intrigued by how, in this moment, so it's not just that we have to have these new conversations and give voice to things and be truthful. Uh the language we use is important. I feel oh, like yeah. people are right. There's, um, I mean, your book, these books, which kind of defy categorization. I mean, it's poetry, but I don't know. It's 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 poetic language. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even Ta-Nehisi Coates or Isabel Wilkerson, those books are written with very beautiful language. And I was when I was reading, getting ready for you, I was. I, somehow came across somebody writing with you, but writing about how in the two weeks after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Langston Hughes's poem, Let America Be America Again, was viewed tens of thousands of times on poets.org. Um, I 
don't know, I'm just I'm watching that with fascination. How this reckoning is also bringing us back to poetry, even to, in ordinary time and speech. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I, poetry is the um, that was Jen Berman. The poetry is the time place for me that holds both experience and emotion. Mm -hmm. And it's outside a sort of transactional economy. And Mm -hmm. so people, I think, can go there and and be held by truths, even if the truths are specific to experience. They're truths. Mm -hmm. And... um, and it's not it's not geared to anything. I mean, you know, I think I think that um, Lewis Hyde, the gift, talks about how poetry is um, is the one form, and and I'm sure poets will agree that lives in a place that has nothing to do with anybody waiting for it. It's you're doing it because you must. It emerges. Yeah, it's. Mm-hmm. I mean, fiction is a whole different market, but yeah. poetry it comes and people, they you know. And then when, when the you know, when the poem or the line arrives in you, it mm. never leaves. Mm. It never leaves. Like there's a poem by um, Kavafi called "The Bandaged Soldier," and the line, the last line is. The blood of my love is on my lips, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just that line stays in me. And I don't know, I couldn't tell you the last time I read that poem. But uh-huh. you know, so I think I think it's just a whole you know, some of the best writers were poets like Nabokov or Cormac McCarthy or some mm-hmm. you know, and I think it's the love of language and what language can do. And you wouldn't you wouldn't write or read if you didn't really believe that language is as as human as it is. Mm. But a lot of our public language has become dehumanized and coarse, mm-hmm. right? And clinical. Are we talking about Trump now or <laughs> No. Well, that's why I added clinical, because there's course and there's clinical, and they're both a problem. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) I'm being balanced. (laughs) Um, um, Yeah, but so I feel that's another contribution is just, I mean, just the reminder, like putting language out there that humanizes. Mm hmm. Which is more is more special right now than it should be, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Leila Long Soldier. Mm-hmm. I um, that book is tremendous. Whereas, yeah. and um, and that's you know, and when you when you listen to some of those poems, you're just. You're seduced by her humanity, yeah. basically. Yeah. Her um, her desire 
to meet you, to meet it through mm-hmm. language, whatever, whatever that thing is, you know? And it is, it is beyond the, um, the brutality of the events that got the book going in some ways. Yes, and it also carries that brutality yeah. and allows that truth to be... But she had to pass through it mm-hmm. to get yeah. to... It, if, if she had ignored those things, then it wouldn't be the book that it is. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm talking to you, Krista. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, speaking of, speaking of one thing you, um, you mentioned a little while ago that part of your, um, your aspiration with the new conversation is also to see your own blind spots. So, you know, one thing, about, one thing that's fun, especially at this point, about my job is that I feel like there's a cumulative conversation that happens between a lot of the people who I talk to, kind of mm-hmm. like get to proxy with each other. Um, and another person I was thinking of when I was getting ready for this is a conversation I had with Arlie Hochschild, who is a sociologist, mm-hmm. who a Berkeley sociologist who spent five years in Louisiana and wrote in kind of Tea Party country, like looking at that phenomenon, and the book came out in September 2016, and it felt like it described... Um, the world we were. What was it called? Um, it's called "Strangers in Their Own Land," mm-hmm. and it's about um, it's about seeing the world through the eyes of a very different white reality. Mm-hmm. And I asked her, um, you know, and I think that's such important work now to yeah. understand our country and to also get to know our those our fellow citizens. Mm-hmm. But I said to her. Um, I just wonder how you respond to the to the reality that there are all kinds of people living, you know, people of color have been living in this country feeling like strangers in their own land for a long, long time. And when it's white people, um, there's, a, there's an intensity of attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she basically just said, well, you're right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a valid... Yeah. It's a valid point. I don't know, but you've also said that one thing you've been grappling with is, is uh, understanding that or thinking about poor white people, and mm-hmm, that that's mm-hmm. not not has not so much been in your view. Oh yeah, no, I, definitely. I you know I was I was picked up. I I had to give a um, a, a graduation speech. At a college, and it was way, it was, you know, like two hours past the airport. And um, it was one of those colleges up in the Berkshires. And um, the woman who picked me up was this really interesting woman. She, you know, she was a white woman, um, very working class. And I asked her if she had voted um, for her current president, and she said yes. And, um, and she was very defensive, you know, very like, yes and so what? And, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm just curious, um, why was it healthcare, what, what was it? And she said um, she had Obamacare, um, 
But she didn't really believe in health care. She didn't believe in doctors. Because um, when she, her husband went to the doctor, they said he would live for a year, and he lived for two months. And she started crying as she was driving the thing, the car. And, and then I, you know, we got to talking. And then she told me she lived in a double wide, and I had no idea what a double wide was. But I didn't want to ask her what a double wide was because I didn't want her to think I didn't know what a double wide yeah. was. Yeah. <laughs> not because I, I care about being not knowing, but I wanted to share whatever her, her situation was. Yeah. And so she was, she was ex- and then I kindly figured it out that it was some kind of trailer park that was mm-hmm. double wide. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and then she would, she told me this heartbreaking story that she usually went to visit her sister in Washington D.C. But this year there was a crack in the double wide, and so if she could work for this is this was the end of the school year, so this is like May, so. She's not going to go the summer, so she could work through the summer. So the guy could fix the crack in the double wide before the coal came. And I said to her, well, how much do you think it's going to cost? And she said, about $300. And then I spent, like, part of the ride thinking, should I just give her the $300? Or what should, you know, I didn't do that because... Um, but but it, it was just, you know, a different reality. And, and then I asked her, um, what did she do when she wasn't driving? And she said, well, I do theater. And apparently there was a church in town and they had asked for actors. So she comes and she does theater. So, you know, like all of a sudden this woman became this yeah. whole person who still would probably, um, you know, vote against my mm-hmm. best interests, my life possibilities and all of that, but, but was a whole person with, with a lot of pain and, um, and was making a life the best she knew how. And, and, and you know, by the time we, we arrived, she was like, it was great talking to you. I was like, great talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then, yeah. but it, it, it was a lot, you know, it was one of those moments where um, I'm often being driven by people who are not me. And, and I spend a lot of time thinking about how can I say this so that we can stay in this car together? And yet... Explore the things that I want to explore with you. I think that, I just think that line, how can, what did you say? How can I? How can I say this so we can stay in this? How can I say this so we can stay in this this car car together? together? (laughs) It's like, it should be a national motto for us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Something I love, you know, James Baldwin, James Baldwin's words floating Mm -hmm. around the world is another example of this. couple of lines of James Baldwin that you brought to me that I just want to give back to you. Uh, the purpose of art is to lay bare the questions hidden behind the answers. Mm. 
And also, love takes off masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. I have a new one. What? I have a new Baldwin quote. Okay. It's in the new book. It's, um, white people sought to civilize black people before they civilized themselves. Is that good? If I ask you now, right now, like in this moment, and let's not, let's not use the mm-hmm. five-letter word. Okay. All right. I'm ready for this. It's a challenge. <laughs> Get, that word gets too much publicity. Uh-huh. Um, what makes you despair right now? Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, just kind of this week, today. Mm-hmm. And what is, what is giving you hope? Well, what makes me despair is not the five-letter word, actually. I mean, the five-letter word is an amplification, as I've said a lot of times, about what is already here um, and has always been here. Um, What makes me despair? I love it that you're having trouble with that question. (laughs) You know, I, I... I mean, we are in it for the long haul. Yeah. And um, what gives me hope? Let's go there. Because, uh, you know, I I don't think, I think this is it. This is our lives. And and we have to show up. I mean, if if I get, if I get close, it might be um, one of the things that irritates me, so it might be a despairing moment, is when people don't vote, for example. And I know it's like, oh, you're just saying that, but no, 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 no. It is our one way to show up. Um, because the corruption is from the top down, we have been given this gift and it is a gift. Hmm. And to throw it away to me is, um, is deeply irresponsible. And, and I, I sort of feel like some of that might have happened in 2016. And, um, but I, I get hope from... from from people showing up. I really do, and I, and I think, I, I don't care what they said, I think we had a little bit of a blue wave over <laughs> the, <laughs> the midterms, and, um, and I think we, it's practice, um, because it's com- you know we're 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 going to be put in a position in in no time at all where russians are no russians we're going to be given a do over and we need to show up we need to bring everybody with us yeah and we need to show up Um, I want to ask you to read, just as we finish, this went so quickly, one of the 
one of the final pages of, of Citizen. And, of course, you want the days to add up to something more than you came in out of the sun and drank the potable water of your developed world. Yes, and because words hang in the air like pollen, the throat closes, you hack away. That time and that time and that time, the outside blistered the inside of you. Words outmaneuvered years, had you in a chokehold, every part roughed up, the eyes dripping. That's the bruise the ice in the heart was meant to ice. To arrive like this every day, for it to be like this, to have so many memories and no other memory than these, for as long as they can be remembered, to remember this. Though a share of all remembering a measure of all memory is breath. And to breathe, you have to create a truce, a truce with the patience of a stethoscope. Claudia Rankin, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.